Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. The Derech Hashem, in the fifth parak explains to us what I call life from 35,000 feet. He really takes us on a tour of the universe, and the reason why this has tremendous meaning is because A, it allows us to understand things on a much deeper level, B, it allows us to understand us on a deeper level. So let's begin with the following. He explains that when Hashem created the physical world, Everything in the physical world has a spiritual counterpart to it. As a matter of fact, he explains that what we see with our naked eye, the physical world, as much as we see and as much as we understand about it, we see but a tiny, tiny sliver because everything in the physical world has a spiritual counterpart. And not only does it have a spiritual counterpart, but the spiritual counterpart is what creates, maintains, and orchestrates everything in the physical world. So, for instance, he explains, before Hashem created anything in the physical world, Hashem created spiritual counterparts, and these spiritual counterparts were assigned and given the job of keeping things in existence and exactly what was supposed to be with them. Let's begin with an example. We mentioned this last week, but it bears repeating. The Pesach says, Hashem created the two large luminaries, the large luminary to rule over the day, and the small luminary to rule over the night, and the stars. Now, it doesn't take a great amount of understanding to realize there's a tremendous contradiction in the Pasuk. The Pasuk says Hashem created the two large luminaries, the large luminary to rule over the day, and the small one to rule over the night. Now, that's about as much of a contradiction as you're going to get. Either they're both large or one was large and one was small. How do you say the same thing in the same Pasuk? And Rashi explains, actually, Shavim Nivro. Both were created equal. Venesmata Lavana. The Lavana was made smaller. Hashem said to the moon to make yourself smaller. Why? And because the Lavana, the moon, was Makatrik. The moon complained. The moon said, how can two kings wear one crown? Meaning, there can't be two luminaries who rule over the day. There can't be two kings wearing one crown. Hashem said to the moon, you're the one who complained, and therefore make yourself smaller. And then in fact, because Hashem made the moon make himself smaller, Hashem appeased the moon by having the stars accompany him at night. The stars would be the accompaniment and therefore give him a sense of appeasement. Now, when you read this Rashi, what you have to understand is exactly the point that the Darach Hashem explains. And that is that when Hashem created the moon, Hashem didn't create the physical moon. Hashem created the spiritual counterpart called the Levana. And this spiritual counterpart was assigned, given the task of creating the physical moon, bringing it forth into existence, and it was responsible for the existence of it, the movement of it, and everything that would happen with this physical moon throughout its existence. And basically what this Rashi means is literally Pshuto Kemashmo, literally that Hashem created this spiritual force, and gave the spiritual force the job of creating the moon. The spiritual force said, I have a complaint. It can't be two kings can't wear one crown. 
And therefore the net result was, Hashem said, make yourself smaller, <clears throat> you're the one who complained, and in fact Hashem gave the appeasement to the stars. But again, it's a spiritual force that was given the job. Now, <clears throat> what the Derech Hashem also explains to us is that all of these entities <clears throat> have real, what, what we call Das Nifrod. A Das Nifrod means a separate, independent intelligence aside from Hashem. Meaning, if you read in Davening, <clears throat> from Baruch Hu on, you hear the singing, the Malachim sing Shira, and in fact, if you read on Yom Kippur, the thousands and thousands of groups of Malachim sing Shira. Now, if you don't understand what's going on, you look at it as it must be uh, some kind of a group of uh, loudspeakers, meaning they're all just <clears throat> angels. Angels don't have free will. They just um, sing. But in fact, <clears throat> the Derech Hashem explains to us that they, each one is a Das Nifrod. Now, if you'd like to know what Das Nifrod is, Das Nifrod means an independent intelligence separate from Hashem. So, let's focus on that for a minute, what that means, and let's see if we can understand that. And to do that, <clears throat> let me share with you the following observation. There are people I know who I've never met. So, for instance, there was a vendor that I dealt with for many, many years. I never met him. I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know, I didn't know anything about him other than I knew him very well. And I spoke to him pretty regularly, and I had a very good understanding of who he was, even though I never saw him. Why? Because you can converse with a person, and you could speak to a person, and you don't physically meet them. You don't physically know them. But they exist, and you know their personality, you know the type of person they are, because you know who they are as a person. Let's do one more step. There was a fellow I knew, uh, as a matter of fact, my wife and I both know him very well, when he was in his 50s, he was a Balchuva, and he began dating a woman who was also Balchuva, uh, who was also about the same age. The only problem was that he lived in New York City, and she lived in Utah. Now, that's quite a distance, and it was a while back. There was no Zoom calls, etc. So they conducted their entire relationship over the phone. They spoke for many months, and they became very, very interested in each other, and they developed quite a relationship to the extent that they made up as follows. I'm going to fly in, she said, and when we meet, we're going to make a decision. Either we're going to marry or not, but basically, they were both ready to go. And in fact, they met at the airport, and not long thereafter, they were married. But what's interesting to note is that he said to us the following. He said, I knew I was going to marry her. Unless she was wider than she was tall, I'm marrying her. And it was meaning there was such a relationship, they had such a connection, such a bond, even though he had never seen her. Now, I don't recommend you doing this if you're under 50, but the truth is you could have a connection to a person, you can know a person very well, even though you've never seen the physical essence. Why? Because the essence of the person is not the body. The body is something I temporarily occupy, but I'm the one inside, I'm the one who thinks, I'm the one who feels, and you could know me even if you've never met me, and even if you didn't see me. You could hear an entire sheer on audio, and you could really be have a good understanding of who the person speaking is, because again, you know the person because the physical expression of the human being is but the housing, but the person is inside. Now this is what the Derech Hashem is explaining to us. As we are people, we are personalities, I'm different than you, you're different than him, we each have different likes and dislikes, we have different perceptions, we have different understandings, so too every physical component in this world has a spiritual counterpart that is a Das Nifrod, separate, intelligent,
thinking part, independent of Hashem, with its own interests, its own agenda, and everything that it wants, it is within itself, it is an entity. Now, the key distinction between us and them is the fact that we're in the body, we're blinded. But in fact, what the moon was saying, on some level there was an expression that was lacking some element of jealousy, some very, very small, infinitesimal almost element of jealousy that it felt it wasn't appropriate. And again, Hashem in fact punished it. But you'll see, if you pay attention in dominating, we say this often, <clears throat> we describe the kochas, you pay attention, Shabbos dominating, right after Baruch Tovim Ma'oru Shabbat Lelokeinu, great are the Ma'oros, the lights that Hashem created, Hashem gave him Malem Ziv. Then listen to what it says. They are happy when they go out and they're joyful when they return. They do the will of their Creator. Meaning, each of the physical entities that you see, the stars, the sun, the moon, have a spiritual counterpart. That spiritual counterpart obeys Hashem's commands and does what Hashem wants and it serves Hashem properly. And in fact, everything in creation functions that way, with one exception. And that exception is, can I ask a favor if I could? I, I'm distracted. I'm sorry. You know, you know. I'm sorry, I apologize. Just, I, I have ADHD and I get very, um, I get very um, distracted. I don't, ladies, you know, yeah, ladies of the Shia don't, they, we don't, anyway, I'm sorry. Okay, <clears throat> so, you don't have to be really. You, you can. Sorry. Um, okay. In any case, back on the farm. Man and man alone is a combination of two different entities. Man is a combination of a physical and a spiritual, but this is something that we typically misunderstand to a dramatic extent. And I, I'd like to explain something very, very clearly here that the Derek Hashem explains, and that is that the Nefesh of Bahami that influences me is completely physical. I'll give you a good for instance of what I mean. Um, a number of years ago, I was speaking in a certain community, and when I entered the room, a woman said to me, Rabbi, thank you. I'm so glad you came. I- I'm so happy to meet you. You know, your book helped me so much. Now, you know, naturally you want to hear what she meant. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, your book, The Torah Lifestyle, you describe the animal soul of a person, um, and it gave me such cons- consolation. Thank you. I said, what do you mean? She said, well... My dog recently died, and after reading your book, I know that I'm going to rejoin my dog in heaven when I leave this earth. So it gave me such consolation, Rabbi, thank you. Now, unfortunately, she missed the boat, because the Derech Hashem explains that when Elsie the cow dies, her nefesh abahami just evaporates. You see, the nefesh abahami is a physical entity. It may look spiritual, it may seem spiritual, but the animal soul in the animal is utterly, completely, totally physical. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. In other words, imagine you have a robot, and the robot has programming. Now, the robot may be programmed to sweep your floor, the robot may be trained to put your jacket away, whatever whatever you've trained your robot to do, the robot will do, and the robot has programming inside, but that programming is written in code. That code is in the physical world. That code exists. Now, you may not see it. It may be in in bits and and bytes, and you may not see that in front of you, but that's in the physical world. Anything in the physical world has a temporary existence, and once it's over, it's done with. So, for instance, 
anything that you see in the animal kingdom, any of the drives, the inclinations, the passions, are all physical. Now, they're a little bit more spiritual than the physical body, meaning the body of the tiger is the physical outer housing. It's what we would call, it's never Bahami, it's animal soul is programming, but it's instincts, it's a desire to eat, it's a desire to pounce, the type of food that it eats. All of those attractions, all of those drives are written, programmed into its animal soul, and all of those are physical, they're not spiritual. Um, now again, they look a little spiritual, and a person could f- be fooled by it, but they're not. So for instance, um, if I were to ask you electricity, is electricity physical or spiritual? Now, electricity is something that no one has ever seen. The only thing you can see at best is lightning that burns off the impurities in the air. But electricity is a theory. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a pretty powerful theory. If you put your key in the socket, you know it ends very badly. And it is a very powerful theory, but, it, but the simple reality is it's in a physical world. You may not see it, but there are many things that exist in the physical world that you don't see. So, for instance, radio waves. And radio waves will penetrate walls, will go right through things, and I'll never see them. But yet I know they exist, but they're, again, they're physical. Light waves are physical, radio waves are physical, x-rays, which go right through bone, or actually get stopped by the bone, but go right through the skin, go right through metal. These things, they're, they're physical entities that have different properties to them, but again, they're still in the physical realm. They are not spiritual, they're completely physical. And the key distinction is that once we're done our job here, they all evaporate. Now, this has an interesting side benefit for us to know, and that is what happens when I die? What's life like? So I know that the body's put in the ground, and I know that to some extent it's WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get, meaning whatever level you reached, whatever you accomplish, you are, but what's it like in that world? What, 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 what do I experience? What's it like? And let me make it even more clear. I'll, I'll make it simpler. I had a fellow once in my high school, Shear, who said to me, Rebbe, is it true that, um, that uh, the Olam Haba is the tzaddikim, we're crowned and they sit around learning all day? I said to him something like, well, that's one way to envision it. He said to me, that, that's not Gan Eden, that's Gehenim. Now, if, if you think about it that way, why do you think of it that way? <clears throat> That's because you're thinking in very physical terms. But if you'd like to understand what it's like when my body's put in the ground, you have to imagine just the following. Absolute peace. No conflict. Meaning everything here that pulls me one way, pulls me the other way, ceases to be. You see, right now, as I speak to you, I'm comprised of two elements. My neshama, which is pure <clears throat> spirituality, pure ruchnius, and the Nefesh Bahami, the animal soul, the Nefesh Bahami has all of the drives and instincts needed to keep me alive. Included in that is anger, competition, jealousy. Included in that is something called boredom. You ever get bored? You're, after a while, you're bored. You did this, you did it yesterday, you did it the day after, and it's boring. I, Rabbi, we did this, we did this last week, we did it, it's boring. Now, the reason why you'll get bored in this world is because you live in a world of competition, conflict, and ever-competing parts of you. There's a part of me that brilliantly understands exactly why I'm here and recognizes Hashem, only wants to serve Hashem, and then there's this whole other part of me that's constantly pulling and constantly moving and constantly doing and constantly doing everything but that which I wanted to do. 
So one moment I'll be hungry, the next minute I'll be distracted, the next minute I'll be bored, because there are many different forces that are constantly pulling and constantly yanking at me. When my body's put in the ground, my body ceases to exist relevant to me, and the Nefesh Bahami evaporates. At that moment I separate, and I have absolute total clarity. With an acute brilliance, I wake up, I see things, I understand things, I remember everything in my existence, and no longer is there any pull, no longer is there any competition, no longer is there any fights between different wishes, different wants, no longer do I want this and I don't want that, I want to do this, I don't want to do that, no longer am I pulled, I'm in absolute total tranquility, absolute total peace, in that state I am forever. But again, this is the key. I don't get bored, I don't get tired, I don't get... It's just absolute, total, complete, utter peace, and I stay that way forever. Now, again, it's very interesting to note and very interesting to understand this because it helps us understand how much of us really is temporary and how much of us is passing and just comes from the physical world. And when you understand this, it becomes a little bit easier to relate to what Olam Haba is like and ultimately what I'm like. But that's not the point of this parak, And that's not the point of what the Derech Hashem is discussing here. If you'd like to better understand what the Derech Hashem is explaining to us here, <clears throat> let's move back into the conflict between <clears throat> what he calls the Gashmias and the, and the upper world. So again, everything in the physical world that we live in has a spiritual counterpart. And that spiritual counterpart was given the, um, <clears throat> the mission, the job of creating the physical part, and maintaining it. So that means if you see a tree, if you see a mountain, if you see a rock, if you see a river, Hashem first created a spiritual force and gave that spiritual force the task of creating, maintaining, and keeping the physical entity in existence and keeping it as it is. Now, it's a much more complex and complicated world than what we normally think about. Um, if you'd like to understand what the world really looks like from the from 35,000 feet, I'll give you a muscle I think is very, very telling. Imagine you have an African villager. This is a fellow who spent his entire life in the African jungle, never really came out of it, and you bring him to civilization. So you put him on a plane, and he flies up, and he's flying over JFK. And as he's descending, you get, you know, let's say at 20,000 feet, 15,000 feet, 10,000 feet, he begins looking, he sees all these tiny, tiny little cars. And he says, wow, that's amazing, the world you live in, you have all those cars, and, and, and they just go by themselves, and they know how to move, and they know how to go. And you say to him, fellow, I got news for you. Each of those cars has a driver. Has a, what do you mean, there's a driver? They're tiny little cars. No, 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 they're full-size cars, and there's a driver. They wouldn't know where to get off, they wouldn't know where to exit, they wouldn't know how to do that. What you're looking at is from way, way up high, you're not appreciating the detail. And as he gets lower and lower and lower, and he actually lands, he sees, in fact, that every car has a driver, and the truck has a driver, the bus has a driver. Everyone has someone guiding it and keeping it. I think that's a very apt muscle for what this physical world that we live in is like. We think things just exist. And even if we're a mom and, oh, so Hashem runs the world. And what we don't recognize and we don't see is the tremendous involvement of what the Derech Hashem calls kochos and molochim. Every physical entity has a koach. A koach is the spiritual underpinning, the spiritual force behind it. And that spiritual force 
is what was given the mission of creating and maintaining the physical entity. In addition to that, there are legions and legions of malachim, of angels who are responsible for the order, and responsible to make sure that everything does what it should do on time, everything should be as it is. And if we were privy to the upper world, we'd see a vast, complex, intricate involvement of these kochos and malachim, each one doing their job, each one making sure that everything existed and everything ran and everything was doing that which it should be doing. Now, this is something that's a little difficult for us to understand because, again, we live in a highly physical world. Um, my ADD is acting up again. Here we go. Um, um, I apologize. Okay. By the way, yeah, um, so we live in a very physical world and we can't relate to the physical essence of things, but the spiritual counterpart is what keeps everything doing, everything existing, and everything doing as it should do when when it should do. Now, really, if we understood the world, we'd understand that the world is what we call top-down. That means the source of everything in creation starts with the upper worlds, and the upper world keeps everything in the physical world in existence. There's only one exception to that, and that is man. Hashem gave man the ability to not just control the physical world, but based on how he uses the physical world, he will either give sustenance or the opposite to everything in the upper spiritual world. So for instance, if man uses the world properly, the spiritual underpinning of the world is given koach, is given strength and given power. If man misuses the world, he literally damages the spiritual counterpart. So for instance, the Medrash tells us that when Hashem created Adam Rishon, Hashem said, look at the beauty of Gan Eden. Look at this beautiful world. Adam opened his eyes and saw a world replete with wonder. He saw trees, he saw an ocean, he saw the rivers, he saw the beauty of this world. And Hashem said, Pay attention that you do not destroy my world. Meaning, Hashem said, I have created this world and I've given you the keys to my sabratius. If you use the world properly, you'll give strength to the upper world. If you misuse the world, you're going to weaken the upper world. And since the upper world, the spiritual world, keeps the physical world in existence, you are either going to be the maintainer or destroyer of the upper world and the physical world as a manifestation of that. In fact, when Adam sinned, what he did was he wrecked the spiritual world. He messed up the spiritual dimension, and by doing that, everything in the world changed. When I say changed, it was a dramatic transformation. Adam used to be huge, phenomenally large. He towered over every animal in creation. Every animal was standing in trepidation and fear, awe of of Adam because he was so tremendous and so great. What he did with this one act was he literally shrunk himself, he introduced death, he changed the world dramatically and completely corrupted the world. <clears throat> the world we live in now is vastly different than it had been, again, because of Adam's sin and because of his act. Because again, Hashem gave him control, gave him power to empower the upper worlds, and the upper worlds control the physical worlds, what Hashem was doing was giving him the keys to my sabratius. Now, this is one man, and you may assume that it's one man and it's not us. 
But I'd like to share with you that it is very much us, and it's us all the time. And if you'd like to understand fundamentally our relationship to the world, Der Hashem explains that we are much like Adam Rishon, we were given tremendous influence and power. What we view in our physical world is is minuscule. We view, we have a very, very mundane, very, very immature version of what happens. We do things in the physical world, and we look at that like it's a big deal. And what we fail to recognize is the tremendous influence that the physical world has on the spiritual world, and thereby back down to the physical world, because it's a chain. If you use the physical world properly, you light up the spiritual world. The spiritual world then gives chiyas to the physical world, and the world continues. If you misuse it, you blow it royally. So if you'd like to understand this on a fundamental level, I have a muscle that I think defines it. Imagine you took a person from the Civil War era, right? Let's say you took a Civil War veteran, and he's a guy who went to war fighting with, still with the muskets from the uh, Revolutionary War period. That's the world he grew up in. He lit a fire. You boiled up coffee on the pot there. That's the world. And he got to come into our world. And he saw you one day sitting at your kitchen table, and you were holding this device in your hand, and you're moving your finger up and down on it. Up and down, and you clicked, and up and down, and then you clicked a little bit later. <clears throat> up and down, up and down. He looks at you and says, what are you doing? Why are you sitting there moving your finger? What are you, what are you wasting your time for? He tell him, well, I'm ordering from Amazon. I'm ordering some... Uh, you know, I ordered some food, and now I ordered my batteries, and I ordered, uh, you know, I needed some balloons, so I ordered it. So what do you mean, what's Amazon? And what's it got to do with you? Trying to explain to a person from that world that your device communicates with a satellite three miles up via microwave. That satellite somehow knows to connect to another satellite, which knows to connect to the distribution center in Amazon, which knows to send a signal to somebody to pick out the right product, knows to put it on this truck, knows, and somehow two days later the product ends up at your door, he would look at you and with absolute, he would never be able to fathom, never be able to understand because he would say to you, you're making that up, it's impossible. But when day after day the product arrives, and day after day you order and stuff's there, after a while he says to himself, listen, I don't get it, I don't understand how, but something is up over there. In a very real sense, that is us with this world. In other words, we live in a very physical world and we don't recognize the extent of what we do and how we affect things and how we change things. But these impacts and these influences are tremendous and miles and miles beyond anything we could ever understand. And if you really want to understand this, it's sort of like it requires delving into the world. You know, we call this Kabbalah and we call it um, things that we don't normally focus on, but if you want to, if you want to understand why we're here, if you want to understand the Torah, and if you want to understand things on a deeper level, you have to begin to understand these things. And I'll explain to you in, in very simple terms. Here's a very simple question I'd like to ask any Orthodox Jew to answer. Hashem is more merciful and kindly than anyone we can know. How do you explain to me the following halacha? A man is having a very rough time. He had a business failure. And he was always a good guy. He learned to daven, but his business, his business went down, and he's in debt, and things are getting worse and worse and worse. <clears throat> One Shabbos morning, he's in shul, and he's so distracted, he just he runs out, and he bums a cigarette, and he starts smoking a cigarette. Okay, what's the halacha? So <clears throat> we know the halacha is that he's chayiv misa, right? He did something so egregious, 
He smoked a cigarette on Shabbos. He lost his lease on life. Now here's the question. What's the big deal? Okay, he's having a bad day. No one's saying it's a big mitzvah. But is that worthy of taking a man's life? Tell me, Schayev Misa, Bezdin would kill him? If he had witnesses, it was a time of the base of Mikdush, <clears throat> we had two witnesses, you're telling me they would take that man out to, to, to be killed? But why? What did he do so bad? What did he do that was so terrible? And as long as you live in the physical world and don't realize the impact we have on the upper worlds and don't realize the interconnectivity, you'll never understand the answer to that. <clears throat> Once you understand that everything in the physical world has a spiritual counterpart, and Hashem said, here are the keys. Here are the keys to my sabrashas. Your actions will have dramatic and incredible impact in the upper world. It's going to change things. It's going to affect things. It's going to either give power or it's going to dramatically damage. But that is the power that you were given. And I have a little muscle that I think maybe helps bridge the gap a little bit. So as you know, electricity and the source of electricity is a major issue today. How do you create electricity? The only way you create electricity is with other energy. Now, if you understand the basic principles, the basic principles are simple. Basic principle is, if you have a turbine that's going to spin, and you have a magnet, this magnet is, going, is surrounded by copper wire. When the magnet spins, it causes the electrons in the copper wire to move more quickly, and that's how you generate electricity. All electricity is basically generated in that way, you have a magnet, the magnet moves the, the copper wire surrounding the magnet, and when the magnet spins, it causes the electrons in the copper wire to move more quickly, and that energy is the source of electricity. So you have to figure out how to get the turbine to spin. You can either spin it by <clears throat> tapping the wind or water or burning fossil fuels, and man now has all kinds of clever things, turbines and wind elements to try to create electricity. Okay. Now, it happens to be that this is a major issue, and Texas State University decided to go green. They were going to, um, I don't know how serious they were, but they put generators on 30 elliptical machines, and they decided they were going to help solve the energy crisis. Now, what's interesting to note is that it cost them $20,000 to do this. And they equipped in their gym, they put 30 elliptical machines and they equipped them as turbines so that when people were, you know, on the elliptical machine, it would move the turbine. And the turbine would, you know, again, spin the magnet by the copper, and that would generate electricity. Now, it actually works. Uh, but here's the interesting part. If you put a man on an elliptical machine, and he does his thing for an hour at full speed, he'll generate about 100 watts of energy, during that hour, which is about enough to light one light bulb in one house. So here's what they found. And what they found was if you were using all of the machines, let's say all the machines were used, let's say 33% of the time, you know, 24 hours, and it was used for actually eight hours. If you used all eight hours, you would generate enough electricity, basically about $348 a year of electricity, to pay back the machinery would take 57 years, assuming you didn't have issues of maintenance and etc. Because one man moving the elliptical machine only produces about enough energy to light a light bulb for about an hour, and it really is a very inefficient way to produce electricity. If you'd like to know what an efficient manner of producing electricity, you go to Indian Point Energy Center. Indian Point is a nuclear power plant that basically it produces enough electricity 
to provide for 25% electric power used in New York City and Westchester, uh, 2 million homes, thousands of businesses, hundreds of critical transportation, health, municipal systems, all of it from a nuclear reactor. And the nuclear reactor produces 1,028 megawatts of power. That's about 100 million times what any human being could ever produce because nuclear power is an incredible energy source and is beyond anything that any human being could ever do. And again, you could power a city, you could power industry, you can move the LIRR, you could do tremendous amount of things because, again, you could, using nuclear force. Now, if you like a muscle to our relationship to the world, imagine the following. Imagine I'm on my elliptical machine, and all I'm doing is moving this little elliptical machine. I'm producing nothing, 100 watt an hour, nothing. It's, it's enough to light up a light bulb. There's only one thing. My elliptical machine is tied to this nuclear reactor, and when I produce my 100 watts an hour, that kicks on the nuclear reactor that produces... 100 million kilowatts an hour, the type of energy that could power a city. And the Derech Hashem explains to us, that is our relationship to the world. And when we use the world properly, yes, I'm a little guy doing nothing, just moving my little elliptical machine, accomplishing nothing, but that's tied to the upper world, and the upper world's are nuclear-powered, and it lights up cities. Now, I don't see it. I put on tefillin, I don't put on tefillin, I daven, I don't daven, I learn, I don't... What's the big deal? The big deal cannot be seen in the physical world because we live in a very, very occluded, very darkened, very unclear world. But if we would see the connection to the upper worlds, my little elliptical machine is powering this nuclear reactor that's literally powering a city and it's giving chias to the world. And that upper world then reflects back into the physical world. So when man uses the world properly, he lights up the upper world, which gives power to the lower world. Everything goes as it's supposed to. When man misuses this world, then what happens is he stops producing the current, the elliptical machine, he stops powering the nuclear forces above, and things start getting dim, things start getting dark, and the upper world can no longer influence the lower world properly. And then you have all kinds of issues and problems, how they surface and how they exist, and what happens as a result of it is an interesting question which we'll deal with in a moment, but the bottom line is, if left to his own devices, man would either power the world or destroy the world. Okay, now, so one major concept that this allows us to understand is the gravity of a human being's actions, how much I can influence things, how much I can change things. But here's a muscle that I think is very important to understand. What happens if you leave a two-year-old? Take a toddler and leave him in a room for an hour. So if you're very fortunate, if you're very lucky, the toddler will only manage to wreck things a lot, make things a mess. If you're not so lucky, the toddler may hurt himself, may cause tremendous damage, because you can't leave a two-year-old unattended, because a two-year-old runs around and does stuff that's very, very dangerous and can be very, very devastating. In a very real sense, that is us in this world. In other words, meaning when Hashem created us and gave us control over the physical world, we're just tied to the spiritual world, Hashem gave us incredible amounts of power and influence. And with that came some very real risks. If man used the world properly, everything is great. The upper world lit up and <clears throat> keeps the physical world in existence. If man misuses the physical world, then all bets are off. And much like the two-year-old that you leave alone in the room and who knows what happens, 
It requires a parent's constant supervision, constantly watching over. <clears throat> In a very real sense, that's what Hashem has to do. Meaning to say, when Hashem created us, Hashem put us in the world and gave us tremendous influence over the upper world. And Hashem has to watch us constantly to make sure that we don't mess things up. Because when Adam Arishan was given free reign, in one fell swoop, one action changed the world. Hashem wants the world to continue in a given way. Hashem wants the world to run in a very organized, systematic way. And therefore Hashem cannot allow us to have total free will. And Hashem has to watch us, much like a two-year-old. Hashem has to constantly be there to correct us, to pick us up, make sure we don't fall off the edge, make sure we don't bang ourselves, make sure we don't mess things up in a major way. And in fact, that's Hashem's influence in the world. Because again, left to our own devices, we could create a tremendous amount of mess. And Hashem has to constantly intercede, constantly stop things to make sure that we don't mess things up. So let's recap, because I think there are quite a number of concepts that we, we dealt with over here. <clears throat> number one, everything in the physical world has a spiritual counterpart. That spiritual counterpart is what keeps everything in existence, what powers everything. <clears throat> that spiritual counterpart really is in charge of the physical world and everything that happens with that. That means to say <clears throat> there's a spiritual part of the world <clears throat> that that's involved with the trees, keeping the trees in existence. There's a spiritual part of the world that's involved with the ruach, with the wind, keeping the winds in existence. Each of those compete in the various laws. There are malachim who guide and keep things in proper proper order. We don't see what actually goes on, but again, much like that African villager, <clears throat> we see things from 35,000 feet, and we say, oh, look at it, it just works. It happens to be, you know, he sees all the cars just happen to get off on the right uh, exit, and they happen to go in the right place, they happen to be there. But as he gets lower and lower, he sees that each car has a driver. We don't see that each of the physical parts of the world has a driver, has a malach, has a car, keeping it, <clears throat> guiding it. We don't see that because, again, we live in a very physical world. But if we were able to <clears throat> focus in on that, we'd be able to see the world with much greater depth. The second part of that is <clears throat> that everything in the spiritual world is dependent on us, meaning everything really comes from the spiritual world down with one exception, the way we use this world. If we use the world properly, we give chiyos, we give power, we give energy to the upper world, which then reflects back to the lower world. If we misuse the physical world, then what happens is we weaken the upper world, which gives tremendous opposite damages the lower world. That connection is man's power, man's influence, and the way man affects things. So number one, it's understanding our power, how much we can change things, how much we affect things, miles and miles, leagues beyond anything we can envision. I see myself on that elliptical machine. I'm a little guy doing little things. <clears throat> what I don't see is my connection to the upper world, <clears throat> but much like that nuclear power plant that's tied to <clears throat> the elliptical machine. As long as I power the elliptical machine, it powers the nuclear plant, which produces <clears throat> a million, a hundred thousand million watts an hour, producing power that can literally light up a city. I don't see that because I don't see the connection, but that is reality. So number one, it allows us to understand the influence of a human being and also the opposite, the gravity. If I say the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, if I embarrass a person in public, if I speak Lashon Hara, the damage is dramatic and incredible. For that reason, Hashem has to intercede, much like that two-year-old Hashem has to watch, to constantly keep in place. Hashem has to constantly watch us. And the last point, which again we mentioned earlier, but it's in a very important point, is understanding the influence of the Nefesh Bahami on me. The Nefesh Bahami is not spiritual. I am spiritual. 
the nefesh bahami is physical. When Elsie the cow dies, her neshama, her nefesh just evaporates. All the programming ceases to exist. When I die, I leave this body and I have absolute clarity. No competition, no competing forces, no wants and don't wants, nothing competing, everything in total peace, absolute total shlemus, with total absolute acuity, I live on forever and accomplish whatever I accomplished, I enjoy, whatever I didn't, I have to live with forever. Okay, so let's now open the floor to questions. We'll take ladies here first, if anyone's still here. We have an attentive audience over here. Um, if anyone has questions, if not, you can please feel free um, to type in the questions. Um, ladies will give you a moment to think. You could also raise your hand. If you like to raise your hand, let me just actually open back to the Zoom part so I could see if anyone has a hand raised. Um, I'm not able to see that right now. One second, let me just go to that part over here. I apologize. Um, okay, someone has a question here. Uh, what happens to spiritual counterparts of trees that are uprooted? Uh, <clears throat> that's a very good question. So, <clears throat> the in other words, the Derech Hashem explains that there will be different forces that will have either opportunities or the opposite to exist or not exist. So, for instance, there will be times when the trees will stand strong, and there will be time when the Ruach, when the wind blows down the trees. Now, <clears throat> that upper world force still remains, still exists, but for whatever which reason, Hashem gave power to the wind, the sar of the wind, the, the sar of the ruach, to knock over the trees at that point that was given more control. But this spiritual counterpart still remains. It, the physical existence of it may not, but the spiritual part remains because there's no change in the spiritual part. Spirituality doesn't change. The only thing that can change the spiritual world is man's usage of the physical world. Man and man alone is the only one who can manipulate, who can change anything in the spiritual world. See, spiritual entities exist how they are for eternity. A malach is what Hashem created it and will remain in that state forever. It can't go up, it can't go down. Nothing in the spiritual world changes. The physical world decays, and the spiritual world is. The only thing that can change the spiritual world is man. When Hashem created the world for Adam's use, Hashem made the entire spiritual world dependent on man. If man uses the physical world properly, he elevates the spiritual world. If man misuses the physical world, he damages the spiritual world. So man is the only one who can leverage, can change, who can change not just the physical world, but the spiritual world, but nothing else can do that. Man and man, man, and man alone is given that power. Okay, yes? But man is not in a vacuum because there's all the other men. Yes. And they're all affecting it, which then affects them. Right, and, and it's a very complex chain. And, and really, so imagine, let's say, you have two people in the same city, one who's using the world properly and really giving tremendous energy to the upper world, another man who's doing tremendous bad, and he's damaging the upper world. So what happens? So again, this is where Hashem intervenes. Hashem keeps things as they're supposed to be. Um, and the Sefer Chinuch explains that Hashem did many things to make sure that the world continues, including suspending some of man's power. Um, if man were given absolute power, it could be that the world, no, not could be, it would be that the world would have been long ago destroyed. Sefer Chinuch explains the reason why Hashem gave tshuva is because if there wasn't Rosh Hashanah, if there wasn't Yom Kippur, it would be about two, three years, and the entire world would be destroyed, totally wiped out. Because you do so much, you do so much, you do so much, eventually it hits the point, there's no return, and the world will be destroyed. Hashem created... Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur as an opportunity 
to stop, recalibrate, do tshuva, and put the world back on course. Because again, says Sefer Chinuch, if not within two, three years maximum, the world would cease to exist. Now, that is a very eye-opening and telling concept because Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur does not apply to the vast majority of the human race. There are seven and a half billion odd people on the planet. If there are 15 million Jews, that's a lot. If you do the math, <clears throat> you quickly see that we are but a minuscule, minuscule, minuscule amount of the human population. So <clears throat> what the Sefer Chinuch is saying is that <clears throat> the world be destroyed if it weren't for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. How could just a few Jews possibly make, if the world is so headed into such disastrous area, and after a year or two it's so filled with everything wrong and evil <clears throat> that you destroyed the spiritual up, up upper world, how is it possible that a minuscule few people can make the difference? And that is the koach given to the Jewish people because we are the movers and the shakers. <clears throat> the ones who really change the upper world are not the Gentile world. The Gentiles, if they use the word properly, they're given certain elements, certain aspects, <clears throat> but the real influences are us. We are the mega powers. We are the ones who are given real access to the upper worlds, and we, the Jewish people, are the ones who change everything and keep everything either going the right way or the opposite. All right, ladies, any questions here? All right, here's another question. If Hashem is watching us to make sure we are okay or safe, why wasn't he watching Adam to make sure he didn't change the spiritual world? Excellent question. Okay, meaning if Hashem prevents us like that toddler from falling off the edge, why didn't Hashem do that to Adam? So we spent a while back discussing what we call plan A and plan B, that Hashem wanted the world to be as it is now. Meaning Hashem created Adam Rishon in a vastly different state than us, wanted, knew full well that Adam would sin because the world we live in now is far better for us. Why? Because even though Adam was created with tremendous wisdom, tremendous understanding, he was also created in a world with no shoulder to the road. Adam Rishon had no capacity to do tshuva because it was so clear to him, Hashem created him, the tremendous influence that he had, it was so obvious that the concept of tshuva basically didn't apply to him. And the proof in the pudding is one man sinned and he changed the entire world. That world, Hashem kept us in that world for a very few amount of people who would be great. There are a few tzaddikim who would make it, but the vast majority of us wouldn't. Hashem created the world in that state, plan A, knowing man would sin, now we're in plan B. In plan B, everything is dark, everything is obscured, everything is difficult. And now there's a tremendous amount of room for rachamim, for tshuva, mitigating circumstances. Listen, he didn't realize, he didn't understand. How much could you expect of him? There's a tremendous amount of shoulder to the road. So the reason why Hashem didn't stop Adam is because Hashem wanted plan B. Hashem created plan A first because a perfect creator can't create an imperfect world. And Hashem ultimately wanted Plan B because that is the uh, that is the proper uh, and, and the best situation. Okay, another question. You say when a person dies, he's at peace, no physical emotions. Yet we we know there's a base in Shamala. Won't in a feel won't I guess feel regret, horror, sadness. So the answer is yes. When that when my body hits the ground, I separate. I stand in front of the bases in Shamala, and I see my entire life. Every action, every word, every thought, right there with absolute clarity of vision. I see it, I relive it, 
but I relive it in vivid, total, absolute clarity with all of my emotions that I experienced then, all of my feelings that I felt then, I feel at that moment, and I'm judged. I'm shown what I could have been, and for eternity, I live with that. Now, that moment of judgment is a moment of judgment, and then let's assume I spend a certain amount of time in Gehenim, and then I go to Gan Eden where I live in utter peace. Utter peace doesn't mean I won't have regrets. Utter peace doesn't mean I won't realize I could have done much more. If I accomplished a lot, hopefully I'll be happy with it. If I didn't, that's a different story. And, you know, a lot of times people say, well, that, that sounds like Gehenim if I realize I could have done more. So I, I have a very simple muscle to hopefully bridge that, that gap. Imagine that you start a business and you do well, you do very well. You build it and you build it and you build it to the point where, where your business is worth $20 billion. Now, it's a phenomenal success, an incredible success, $20 billion industry. The only thing is it could have been $200 billion. So what's it like for you? So the truth is you could have had $200 billion and there's a certain reality I could have built it much more. But twenty billion ain't too bad, you know. I can manage with that. That's hopefully what it's going to be like. I hope, Mitzvah for us in Gan Eden, we work, we accomplish, we do. Could I have done more? Absolutely. I could have done much more. Could, I could, I could have done ten times more. But hopefully, if I've done, if I've worked, if I've accomplished, I have a, a wealth. I have a shiras. I have my portion of the world to come for eternity. I hope it'll be something that's sufficient and proper. The problem is if I'm not working, I'm not growing, and and I could have been worth $20 billion, $200 billion, and I got $200 in my pocket, that's when you got to really worry about things. That's when you really have to worry. But hopefully, I hope we will all be in the other, um, um, in the other side of things. Okay, what's going on in the upper world with the destruction going on? Um, help me understand that a little more. Um, um, I'm not sure what you mean. With the destruction going on, if you mean destruction in the physical world, any pain that you see in the physical world has a source of someone doing something wrong in the physical world. <clears throat> Everything is tied. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question that well. If you could just explain the question a little bit better. <clears throat> um, yeah. What does that mean? That means sometimes there's pain that's in the, phys- in the physical world that it's not. Maybe you're meant to go through it, you're meant to, and that's going to produce certain outcomes or whatever, but that doesn't mean it's a source, has a source in the physical world. Okay, without mentioning names, I want to thank the person who asked that question, so for introducing next week's concept. Next week we're going to discuss um, different aspects of my setting in this world, what I call my life setting. But the, the basic rule of thumb is that anything like hurricanes, typhoons, sicknesses, diseases... Um, illnesses, the general rule of thumb is Hashem created that to punish people for doing the wrong thing. Now, there's also a concept of a life setting. Some people have poverty, some people have great wealth, and we're going to discuss at length next week many of the different aspects and the different details of it, but in general terms, a person who suffers pain, any kind of illness, disease, there's some element, some sin in the physical world that brought that about. Again, we can the spiritual world affected the physical world, um, etc. Now, keep in mind, Hashem watches all. Hashem created everything. Hashem keeps every call in existence, and Hashem is right there with everything happening. And again, guarding us like that, watching that little two-year-old to make sure I don't fall off the edge, and I don't, you know. And hopefully, Hashem is marachim on me and prevents me from really 
<clears throat> damaging myself or damaging the upper world or damaging myself. But again, <clears throat> you have to also understand the tremendous responsibility that we have. Um, okay, is it worth countering someone who does negative things? For example, someone who leads others astray, inciting them to do joking, groupthink, etc., <clears throat> so they'll join them in attacking those who do, won't do as they told. A communist, for example, working to cancel ostracized conservative. Is it good to disprove his slander, impossible, <clears throat> or mind my business? So <clears throat> there are a lot of elements to that question. Um, and and let me say this. <clears throat> um, countering someone who's doing negative things, if you can do it effectively, go for it. The problem is, typically, the way we counter other people is ineffective. I mean, <clears throat> the most effective way to convince someone of their opinion is to argue with them. Whatever someone says, if I'm going to argue with them, all I'm going to do is further entrench them in their belief because all that I'm doing is <clears throat> forcing them to counter my claim. So the best way to get someone to believe their own argument is to argue against them. So <clears throat> if when you say counter, you mean argue, don't waste your breath because all you're doing is working against yourself. If you mean <clears throat> trying to influence people, trying to teach people, trying to help them, absolutely, do whatever you can, because ultimately, first of all, we have an obligation to help every other Jew, <clears throat> we have an obligation to the world, um, <clears throat> but again, it has to be in a productive and constructive manner, because um, because otherwise, again, you're just working against yourself. Okay, let me give that question again, a little more clarity here. What is going on with all things in the natural world that are being destroyed? Is this man... Or not using the physical world properly. So I'm not sure what things in the natural world are being destroyed. Um, the world... Fire. Uh, I'm sorry? Fires, storms, hurricanes. Okay, so if you mean, mean fires, storms, um, there, there are many things that happen in the world. Um, the world we live in is, is peaceful, tremendously productive, tremendously... Um, it's a world that's replete with wonder. It's a world that's incredibly complex, and yet <clears throat> all the systems work, and everything just continues. And you study any part of the world, it, it flourishes, and and just <clears throat> as long as you stay away from the liberal media, you live in a healthy world that <clears throat> that continues and flourishes and will live on as long as Hashem wants it to live on in its incredible, pristine state. Now, again, if you read the wrong type of papers or go to the wrong type of news portals, you see a world that's imploding and horrible things are happening and coming on faster and faster and we're all doomed. And we're all, but, but unfortunately, that's not reality. It's a picture painted for a reason. It's an agenda-driven narrative. What can I tell you? Don't, you'll be a lot healthier, as my wife often tells me in the name of Esther Bela, shut off the news portals if you want to be happy. Just stop reading the paper. Stop going on CNN or whatever you get your news from because what you're perceiving is a very dismal portrait that's so so distorted and so off from what reality if you want to by the way you want to see the world go to go to national geographic go to national geographic and watch any of the don't watch any of the documentary at least any i don't know maybe not anymore you're right maybe there's uh watch the documentaries from 20 years ago and you'll see the incredible, vastly complex ecosystems, each one diverse and each one integrated, each one working harmoniously, and the world flourishes until you put on the liberal agenda, and then the world is dying and dead. So don't watch it, and you'll be a lot happier. 
Okay, I hope you join us next week. She will be back. Next week we'll also have the Shmuz Live. Unfortunately, it's not on this week. I hope you have a good Shabbos, and I thank you for joining. See you next week. Thank you. Okay, ladies, I'm sorry for putting you through this.